Okay. The blank that I missed. Let's begin there, Carolyn. This is more. Hold on. What is going on here? Okay. No. Anyway. The blank that I missed is the last blank on one. What I have for it is such sin derives from a discontent, coveting heart. That's what I have. But you can put, Jim, you had what? Hungry? Yeah, that all works. That's good. Yeah, yeah, it's all, it all works. Um, so, I got lots more I can say and plan to say. I will not be letting you go home early this morning. But first, if you have questions. Abner, Sophie. Oh, Abner, behind you. There you go. I was wondering if you would be willing to share your insights on strategies on taking every thought captive to the obedience sure. of Christ? Sure. That's, that's a great, great question. Let me uh, recommend a book or two. Um, there's an excellent new book that Dr. John Street wrote. It's basically a distillation of his doctoral thesis on the underlying heart motives of sexual sin. Um, we got a couple copies in our bookstore. It's fantastic. Um, there's some other books that I have. But primarily, this is one of those sins that, like alcohol or drug addiction tends to really enslave. In one sense, all sin is idolatry, and yet the Bible doesn't throw that term around after each and every little thing. And so there is a, an enslaving power. Our culture uses the category of addiction. I think, uh, I think the Bible's term is slavery, right? So Romans 5, you once were slaves to sin. If anyone presents himself, he becomes a slave of the one. So I, I generally think along terms of slavery were our culture thinks of addiction, largely meaning the same thing, but just more biblical texts are to come in. And then Jesus' warnings, Paul's warnings about the willing to get, willingness to get radical, um, the willingness to get uh, a, a really aggressive in fighting these things. Generally speaking, because these are things we're ashamed of, we're reticent to speak to people. And when we do, we speak vaguely and not concretely. So one of the strategies I would say is get at least one or two people, people in your life or for whoever this is for, for any believer who practically know what's going on. If someone comes and shares this with you, ask questions. You'll be amazed at how vague things become concrete. How, how was your struggle by this week? It was good. I remember back in New Hampshire, a friend of mine um, was struggling with, he and his girlfriend were regularly sleeping together, and they, he felt convicted about it. He'd come talk to me, and, and so I asked him, uh, how how to go last week? Oh, it went well, went well. Did you guys sleep together? Twice, twice. Okay. And so actual concrete numbers, people, if, you're gonna, if someone's going to be your accountability partner, ask them real concrete questions. What does okay mean? You know, what, does, um, what are some measurable things that you can look at? The second would be to, it's still all, this is all, if you think of those three angles, put off, put on, renew. On the put off side, getting accountability, whether it's internet accountability, um, all of our church computers have covenant eyes. My phone, my home computer does, because I don't want to take the chance that at two in the morning, if I can't sleep and I'm weak in my faith, that I'm, I, I want to know my wife's going to, you know, that it, there's going to be accountability. I remember once talking to a young guy who was uh, engaged, who was struggling with this, and I said, I mean, this gets back to wanting to play hardball with sin. You want to play hardball? Make your father-in-law your accountability partner. No, seriously, you want to play hardball. I remember a guy in seminary saying um, to me that he had made a commitment with his roommate that both, neither of them would look at anything 
and they would pay the other person $50 if they did. And I remember them saying, you only pay 50 bucks once. It stings too much. And the point being, if you want to... Now, I got no... I cannot, when I do counseling, I cannot thus saith the Lord, here's how radical to get. I can make recommendations. I'd, I'd come in at this level of radicalness. But what I can say, based on Matthew 5, is if whatever you're doing isn't working, you need to be willing to ratchet it up. Because you haven't cut off your hand or plucked out your eye yet. So that'd be one thing. Is here's a sin where you want to get more and more radical, if, if you need be. Um, if you want to start down at this level, okay. Um, you need to get rid of your computer, get rid of your computer. You need to go to a flip phone that doesn't have the internet, do that, fine. God exalts the, the humble and he, gives, and he, and he t- casts down the proud. And most people are unwilling to humble themselves. You know, because their friends are like, what happened to your iPhone? I got rid of it, why? It was a stumbling block. And you, you don't want to humble yourself, right? Okay, but God exalts the humble. So on the putting off side, accountability, um, strategies, and start identifying where you're weak. Are you weak when you're alone? Are you weak at the, in the evening? And that would start plugging in your prayer life and your prayer time right before that. Um, I remember when I was going through college, I was dealing with somebody, talking to somebody who, uh, that sort of quiet hour after dinner when people are out doing stuff. That, okay, that's, guess what your new prayer and Bible study time is? The hour before that. So that you're going into that hour as strong as you can, right? Um, on the, on the renew aspect, it would be making sure you're fully engaged in the basic, what I call, ordinary means of grace. Are you in the word regularly? Are you in prayer regularly? Are you in fellowship regularly? Are you serving in any way in the body? Are you giving? I mean, if you think of a, a tree branch, I want as much sap from the trunk of the tree making it to that tree branch. And these are the ordinary means of grace. So if you want God to give you some special zap of grace to fight... I'd want to make sure you're engaged and plugged into all the basic things, basic, all the foundational, fundamental things of the Christian life. And then as the put-on, the put-ons, and, and part of the reason why Dr. Street's, um, I think the name of his book is At the Heart of Sexual Desire or Lust. I, I'll, I'll go grab Abner, can you go grab it? It's on my desk. It's got a black cover, John Street's paperback. Just Can you go get that for me? Thank you. Um, it's excellent is that the Bible, by, by virtue of the put-off, put-on, indicates some of what's going on in the heart motives of sexual sin and lust. And, and one of the reasons I think it can be such a powerful temptation is it can team up, right, with other sins. It can, it can team up with other sins. Some people will go out and commit immorality as a way to get back at, you know, a jilted lover. Well, that's, that's combining lust with revenge, right? For other people, it's a way of um, looking at pornography as a way of rewarding themselves because they pity themselves. They're in a pity party. They feel bad. My life stinks. And then, okay, I'll reward myself. And instead of like with an Oreo, it's going to be with clicking over there. And so it can team up with other things. So here, one of the correspondence is to put on is to cultivate thankfulness. And, and hopefully the correspondence between a, a, a feeling of emptiness and hunger and want and need is the opposite of a gratitude, thankful, overflowing heart. So maybe it's, I need to do a study of all God is for me in Christ. I need to really look at long and deep so I can grow in being satisfied with Christ so that when desire comes, I can say Jesus is better and mean it. Um, And so that may not be as intuitive to do a Bible study on gratitude and thankfulness. Or go to uh, 1 Corinthians 6 where Paul puts another uh, put off, put on in this regard. And again, it's not as intuitive. I think uh, yeah, 1 Corinthians 6, you're dealing with people having sex with prostitutes. And uh, Paul has to say, yeah, no. 
And he says to them, okay, verse 12. Well, I'll cut towards the end. Uh, let's go to verse 16. 1 Corinthians 6, 16. Do you not know that he who is joined a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. Here we go. Passions of the heart. This is fantastic. Um, and uh, do you not know that he who is joined a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it's written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual morality. Well, here's another point. There are only two sins in the Bible we're told to flee. Idolatry and sexual sin. The rest is Ephesians 6. Put on the armor of God, stand firm. And so another point I make as talking to people is if your strategy is fundamentally a fight strategy, I'm going to try harder next time. Like, no, dude, like Joseph, you need to run. And that's, again, getting back to humbling yourself. If there are billboards that are bothering you, drive the long way home. Like, okay, flee. As much as you're able, flee. Do you need to get a new job because you're working at a convenience store that sells, you know, Playboy and pornography? Start applying for a new job. Flee. If you're able to, as much as you're able, flee. We're not told to flee every sin. Here's when we are. Like, as much as you can avoid, avoid. Now, certainly where you can't fight. But with other sins, it's just, okay, you got to fight. Here, if you can run, run. Which also suggests the power of this sin. So flee from immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or you do, do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So there's something about even glorif- putting on, glorifying God in your body. And, and I think this, there is a tie between sloth and... Um, exer- there's a certain amount of thing... I view my body as God's temple for his purposes, and as I plan what I do with it, how much I eat, how much exercise I give it, things like that. Am I glorifying God in my body, or am I viewing my body as a vessel for my own entertainment and pleasure? Right? That's, I think, what it's getting at. I think it's not for nothing that in Proverbs 6, which warns 5 and 6, that warn against the adulterous woman, you also get the warnings against sloth. That King David was not out fighting wars in the season when kings go out to fight, but he was hanging back when he fell into sin. And so... I, there's a lot more you could get at it. I'll give you one of the points. Dr. Street was a, was a teacher of mine in school, and he's, go to Proverbs 6, more hinting at what gets, what's going on in the heart of, because uh, three people might all fall into the same sin through different means and for different reasons. And one person, it could be the pity party, I'm going to reward myself. One person, it's expressing their, so some people do this to prove they're a man, right? Um, because all my friends do this, and I've had no experiences, so I need an experience to prove that I'm a man and that I'm not weak, I'm not effeminate. Um, and so there's many things that can team up with desire to lead people in this type of sin. And in Proverbs, let me get there. Hold on. I, I just remember this being a, a wonderful insight. Um, okay, Proverbs 5. Um, we'll just start in verse 1. It's just one big warning. And, and you got to understand, Proverbs 1, the forbidden woman, the strange woman, the alien woman, is, is the archetype of sexual temptation and lust. This would be the enticing link. This would be any, anything, the, 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 the sketchy poster. This would be anything like that. Um, my son, because Jesse used to be my daughter, my son, be attentive to my wisdom. I'm sorry, I'm, yeah, I'm in verse 1. Incline my ear to your instruction that you may keep discretion and your lips guard knowledge. 
For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. Okay, I remember, this is just meditating on Scripture, and Dr. Sreep pointing out. What does that say about her? If her lips drip honey, what is she? What's, she's a flatterer, right? What does flattery play into? Pride. Another inroads to sexual sin is that feeling of validation when a beautiful woman wants me to know that I can be desired. And so some people, some people, their, their, their sin is a way of self-affirmation. I need to feel desirable. I need to go out and tell myself I can still subdue, conquer someone else with my personality, my looks, and my, my appeal. I need that vindication. And I think a lot of times when you see older men with younger women in their arm, that's partly what you're seeing is this desire. I want to know that a beautiful young woman finds me attractive. Yeah, the forbidden woman's lips drip honey. She's a flatterer. What's that playing into? Pride. So apparently pride can team up with lust and be a motivation for sexual sin. And so it's not, part of why this is tough is because it can team up with so many other things, um, it can, and it has the potential to enslave that you've really got to make war against it and figure out, try to figure out what's going on, why someone is struggling with what they're struggling, um, and then try to start putting on some of the corresponding put-ons. Because if you discovered it's the flattery, I, I just need someone to, to tell me I'm beautiful and good-looking and I'm desirable. Well, there's all sorts of other now issues I can work on in my life to help protect myself. Um, and I could probably, we could probably find 10 or 12 other passages like this that team up with things. But... The first thing would just be taking it seriously, getting some accountability, getting a real plan in place, being ready to aggressively ratchet up that plan, and finding the corresponding put-ons, thankfulness, contentment, um, self-discipline in your body, and making sure you're not isolating yourself from the body of Christ as well, in general as well. That's a long answer, but it, I knew that question was coming, and thank you for asking. Any, any sub-points in that, or is that enough to start... was taught and worked on early on was the whole aspect of Matthew 4 and replacing mm. the lies mm. with the truth of God mm. and, and using verse memory mm-hmm. to have a plan yeah. for a substitute for the lie. So, yeah, that, that's fantastic as well. Sin always tells you a lie or a half-truth. And the, Jesus, our Lord, fought temptation with God's word. If you think you're going to do better than that, or you don't, Jesus might need to do that, but I don't. You're fooling yourself. Um, and so having verses memorized, ready to go, um, what God says, so that when your heart says, you deserve this, or it's not so bad, oftentimes what our hearts do is, is downplay the sinfulness of sin. It's part of the reason why we don't really want to believe that being defined by these sins really means you're an unbeliever. I mean, that's what Paul is saying. You're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. No. Or certainly it's not that bad yet. I'm not like those people. I just, you know, whatever. And so part of what we need to do is remember the, remember the sinfulness of sin. Keep going in Proverbs 5. He paints this vivid picture of ruination, which I would say is a very helpful picture to bring to mind. Um, so we just read 5.3. The lips of the forbidden woman drip honey. Speech is smoother than oil, but in the end, she is bitter as wormwood. Now, that's precisely what you've got to remember. Right now, she's, she's flattering me. Right now, her lips drip honey. Her, in the end, it's bitter as wormwood. And, and your heart's like, no, no, right now, it's sweet like honey. And you've got to respond in truth. Yeah, but that wormwood's coming. Sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. 
Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. Those are some truths you need to remind yourself with. And now, O sons, listen to me. and Do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door to her house. Unless you give your honor to others. And he starts describing some of the consequences. Unless you give your honor to others. Your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take your fill of your strength through your divorce settlement. He doesn't say that, but that's the type of thing he has in view. Right? And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. And you say, how I hated discipline and how my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I'm at the brink of utter ruin in the assembly congregation. Positively, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed. Rejoice in the wife of your youth like a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always with her love. Why should you be, my son, intoxicated with a forbidden woman? And John Piper's written on the fact that that's a helpful imagery that... Um, so often the battle of lust is fought five stages out. If you wait until you're in the throes of passion, if, you're, if you wait till your body head to toe is aroused and ready to go, you're almost certainly going to fall. Um, he says, stay away from her door. And he equates it with drunkenness. There's an intoxicating effect. And people will do things. Why did I do it? I was, I'd lost control. Yeah, just like when you drink a lot and you lose control. So that's why you keep your distance. You don't say, I'm going to get as close as I can last minute. I'm going to use my iron self-will. That's like saying, I'm going to drink six beers and stop or whatever. Nope. At that point, you'll have lost your self-control. And so it equates it with intoxication. Be intoxicated with your spouse, with your wife, not with a forbidden woman. Um, For a man's ways are before the Lord, the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. And then we speak to the, the, we talk about slavery. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. This is a sin that will get you tied down. This is a sin that will ensnare you. He'll be held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline. And because of his great folly, he is led astray. There's a whole lot of vivid imagery there that would, we would do well in our struggle to internalize so that when your heart says, it's not a big deal, you can live, well, no, I don't want to give my strength to strangers. I don't want to become ensnared. I don't want to follow these steps down that lead to hell. No, no, what are you saying? Don't be such a killjoy. No, no, no. You've got to remind yourself because there is, a, there is, according to Hebrews 11, a pleasure of sin. It's like juicy fruit. It lasts about 15 seconds or so, right? No, you know what I'm talking about? Juicy fruit is the most amazing flavor and then you're chewing a stick of like flexible cardboard about 20 seconds later. No, I'm dead serious. That's sin, right? And, and there's no denying. There is an immediate tang and pleasure to it. And so you, oftentimes you've got to counsel yourself with the long-term truth of what re- reality is. So, yeah, replacing the truth with a, replacing the lie with the truth or filling in a half-truth with more truth are also important things. I mean... The, Especially the topics the Bible has a lot to say about. I'd, I'd encourage you to figure out what the Bible has to say about it and start internalizing that. I mean, there's so, just in that one chapter, Proverbs 5, there's so many helpful word pictures and way to describe it. Um, he keeps going, though. Um, 
where is it? Is it? No, Proverbs 7. That's the adulteress. So, yeah, in between 5 and 7 is sloth. And go to the ant, thou sluggard. But now go to 7. We'll just keep going. Warnings against adulteress. My son, keep your, my words and treasure up your command, my commandments within you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your finger. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call insight your intimate friend to keep, to keep you from the forbidden woman and from the adulteress with her smooth words. Let me get another extended analogy. This is a vivid picture. For at the window of my house, I have looked through the lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house. See, he's already ignoring the first piece of counsel, which is staying out of her neighborhood. Passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to their house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of the night in darkness. Behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him. With bold face she says to him, I have to offer sacrifices, and today I've paid my vows. Which I think is some insinuation that she's washed and clean. If you're going to the temple, you've, you know, I've, I've taken a shower today, she's saying. Um, and probably more than that, but not less than that. So now I come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly. I've found you. I've spread my couch with coverings, colored linens, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I perfumed my bed. I got my aromatherapy going. Um, I've perfumed my bed with aloe, and with cinnamon and myrrh. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves. For my husband is not at home, but he has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. A full moon, he will come home. She's, she's, we're set to go. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter. Or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. These would be things, that would be a word picture to have in your mind. The whole, the whole, we're watching from the sideline this, this poor fool walk into a trap like an animal. Animals don't want to be caught or shot. We, we deceive them, we trick them, we put something out in front of them. Fish don't like to eat cold metal. But if you make cold metal look attractive, fish will eat it. The same thing going on here. Oh, now my sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not strain her paths. For many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. If Odie Bauckham once said, um, sexual sin took down the strongest man in the Bible, Samson, the godliest man in the Bible, David, and the wisest man in the Bible, Solomon. So be warned, because you're not stronger than Samson, godlier than David, or smarter than Solomon. And... And again, tying in from this morning's message, if you're fighting, if you're striving, praise God, don't go like that. Am I not agree? But if you've given up, if you're at ease, if you're just letting this wash over you and this is just the way you live your life and that's just the way I am, and sorry, that's more what this is going for. So um, for some of us, this will strive us on to make war 
fight aggressively, if we've been growing tired and lethargic in our battle, upping our game. And then for others, it might seriously be a, uh uh-oh, who and what am I? But, okay. Next question. Oh, in the back, Wanda Cohen. Go, Sophie, go. Alacrity, girl. Is it on? It is on? Okay. I said it once, and uh, Carol and... uh, Carol Hardy was asking me about it, and so I, I used it this morning, so I looked over at him. He's like, alacrity? I said, yeah. So, sorry. Okay. Yes, Wanda. Well, I always ask simple questions. I'm kind of black and white. I can't remember the last time I've been to a wedding that the couples have not lived together. The last one, they even were working as employees of a church. Okay, so they don't see anything wrong with that because it's nobody but this one partner. No. They're going to get married so they view that as okay. God still views that as a sin. Yes. So if they don't repent to that, is that a sin that's going to get them to hell? Well, I mean, this is, this is important, to, this is important to, to clarify. The reason why such patterns of sin, unbroken by repentance, will damn is not because you're saved, but if you commit enough sin, you lose your salvation. If you go back to the way Paul defines a believer in Ephesians, it, he predestined us, he adopted us, he gave us his spirit, he made us anew in Christ, fashioned us for good works that might walk in them. If you're not walking in those good works and you're not being led by the spirit and you're not repenting of sin, you're not submitting to God's word long enough, persistently enough, what, what does that prove you are? Not a believer. So it's not that such people lose their salvation. If such people are giving compelling evidence and testimony, they aren't Christians. Now, David cheated on, stole a man's wife, murdered him, and the baby was born. So nine months have gone by, and the Lord brought him back. And so it might be that such people really are believers, and the Lord's going to come and discipline them. Hebrews 12 is clear. He disciplines all his sons for their holiness. So that might be the case. But... Um, it's not that they're losing their salvation. They're acting like people who are not convicted of sin. They're acting like people who are not obeying God's word. They're acting like people whose shame is their glory. And that's really, really troubling. It's worse when, when we're challenged with truth because, I mean, I'm sure there's sin in my life I don't even know about. Certain about that. Um, but when God shows it to us, when believers come and say, hey, here's what God's word says, here's what you're doing, like, let me help you out. And then people start to harden their hearts. That's when it becomes much and more clear. Uh-oh. You know? But, yeah, it, this is more and more common. I mean, it, it really is a shame that what's supposed to not even be mentioned among us, in many cases, is just assumed. Well, of course. And, of course, young kids are going to, you know. It's, it's now it's just the, the boundaries move from not even a hint to as long as we don't go all the way to fully consummated sex, that's okay. But, of course, everyone's going to fool around in the first, second, third base zone, right? Not even, a, not even a hint, not even named. Like, that's where we're supposed to be. But I can't help but think the reason we've become so lackadaisical about this is precisely because we've gutted the warning. We don't really believe people who are playing with us are playing with something that could... It's, it's like watching someone covered in gasoline play with a lighter. At any moment, they could get engulfed. And at any moment, you, you could begin to prove yourself not to be his sheep as you harden your heart to his word and go your own way. Now, First John says, they departed from us to show they were never of us. So again, it's not that you're losing your salvation, but 
when you start serving another god long enough, you worship another god. Good, thank you. That that clarification. That really now, did. For those yeah. People, you got to fill in blanks. Maybe, and for some people, let me pause. For some people, this will come down to bad teaching. If your pastor said, "Hey, as long as you're in a committed relationship," and it may take a while for the Spirit to instruct, convict, and lead. I would not. I mean. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scriptures inspired of God and profitable for teaching and reproof, correction for training in righteousness. You don't rebuke first, you teach first. So if, if somebody's living with them, I wouldn't be like, you need to repent. I'd say, hey, do you think that's okay? I mean, I'd want to find out, like, do, do you know this is wrong? Or do you think it's okay? And if they're like, no, I think it's fine. Can we look and see what God says? About that? Like, let's teach first. Let's go to the truth first. And so these people may be completely deceived, completely untaught, right? Now, the good shepherd is going to shepherd his flock. He's going to get to them on that. But maybe that's one of those things he hasn't gotten to them yet on. Um, it's much more concerning when people know what the word says, when people know what the truth is, and they say, I don't care. I don't think they know what sexual immorality means. I always thought, until I was reading the Bible more, that it just meant you were having sex with a lot of different people. So, and I think, and I've had people say, well, everybody lives with everybody and they have wonderful marriages. And so I think everybody should hear your sermon because, okay, watch out. It's a coming, <laughs> you know? So I appreciate your sermon. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Other questions? Any other questions? May, Amy. It's not a question. It's, um, I attended the ACBC conference um, training seminars, you know, the spread over the few months, um, a she few said years ACBC, back. ACBC, not ACDC. <laughs> yeah, it's... Association uh, of Certified Biblical Counselors. Yeah. It's, it's the people in sync with this book, um, just, just in case you haven't heard that term before. It used to be Nuthetic Counseling, NANC. Now they're, yeah. these, they're on the highway to well. Yeah. yeah. Oh. Okay, sorry. <laughs> no, no, I do, because I, I just think they're so close to ACDC. But, yeah, see, there's my pagan roots. I may not make that double entendre. There you go. Okay, yes, Amy. Anyway, I know some folks in probably in this room also attended that. It was a really good um, conference. If you have a chance to attend an ACBC conference, I recommend it. Um, but one of the things that they did spend a fair amount of time talking about was all of this, what we're discussing now. And just getting back to Tim's question, one of the resources that they had on display for people to peruse or purchase at their bookstore was called... Um, from a ministry called Setting Captives Free. Are you familiar with it? Oh, yeah, I got that. I, I, not, I, this is such a common problem for men. I got whole sections of books okay. on this. Yeah. Well, anyway, they, I actually was looking at some of their material for uh, weight management and like gluttony, <laughs> weight loss and similar format, and I really liked that one. So I can't say that I've looked through the purity one, but it similarly has... Like if you look on Amazon, a lot of really high reviews, and there are things I will say there where his um, verbiage can sometimes be a little hokey, but it's always very biblical. And so, anyway, setting captives free. the The author's name is Mike Cleveland, and I I know they have online courses you can do. I'm not a fan of online stuff generally speaking. I like the paper thing in front of me, and so I think they have a workbook as well, but I would recommend at least looking into it because I yeah. think that it could be potentially revolutionary. Yeah, if, if, you, if you're looking for any resources for this, for yourself, for your own struggle, for your own study, for someone you know, and you don't need to tell me, and I won't ask, 
you're welcome to come and borrow. I got lots of books and stuff on this topic, from ranging from little pamphlets to that. I got, I got a lot. This stays for a friend, yeah. That's right, like, um, yeah. Okay, other thoughts, questions? Yeah, to give you an idea of how much the bar has moved, my wife once offended someone. I forget who, which is probably good. Um, she was describing her cousins, I think. Serena, if you're watching, you just shoot me a text and correct me. Um, we can do that now. Yay. And she was talking about these couple, um, and she said something like, oh, well, you know, before they got married, well, they weren't, they weren't sleeping together because they were Christians. And the woman was offended, like, that sounded really judgmental. And, and, and I suppose you could say it that way. It's not, my wife just said it instantly, but it's, it's the bar is sure moved from Paul goes from this shouldn't even be named to you can't even assume anything. Um, I remember when I was doing junior high and high school, a, a number of, a number, two's a number, so. Um, <laughs> you say a number and it's odd. But of, of the junior hires thought as long as living together was fine as a step towards marriage. That's, that's fine. It's fine. Um, by, by the way, the answer for that, in case you're wondering, would be I'd go at least to John 4, where Jesus deals with the woman at the well who's had five husbands, and the man she's having now is not her husband. And that's not okay. Um, so that, that'd be one stopping point I'd make to say, well, no, if it's a committed relationship. Um, and uh, we're getting married. Doesn't matter. Um, other other questions? I got some other areas to go. Oh, Renee Lucia. Oh, you were right there. I'm remembering how you said one time when you have relations, you are married. I didn't say that. No, oh. I, don't, I don't believe you're married. Okay. Um, and John 4 is the proof of that. Okay, right. Literally in the Greek. So what's tough in the Greek is woman and wife are the same word, gune. Um, we get androgyny from that, or we get uh, other words from that, the gune. And aner is man, male, husband. And so literally what Jesus says is, the man you have is not your man, which, in Greek, which clearly then means he's not your husband. Okay. You have a man, but he's not your man. Okay. And no, so John 4 makes it clear, se se sexual relations does not equal marriage. Okay. Um, now, 1 Corinthians 6 makes it clear that, uh, that, that sexual activity is saying, is declaring, we are married. Why? Well, because, here, here, let's try to keep this, I got kids now. This is not the sign of marriage. This is the sign of the sign of marriage, this ring. There is an activity that images two becoming one. And so when you engage in that activity, what are you declaring? What are you saying? What are you imaging? We're married. You aren't actually married. But I think that's the logic Paul is using in 1 Corinthians 6 when he says, whoever joins himself with a prostitute becomes one flesh with her, for it says the two shall become one flesh. You're, it's like someone putting on a wedding ring, pretending they're married. That's what you're doing. You're, the, 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 the argument in 1 Corinthians 6 is you're defiling marriage. You're taking a sign of a covenant that's supposed to be holy and pure, and you're, you're doing something else with it. You're defiling a covenant. But no, I do not believe sexual uh, union equals marriage. And I'm not disagreeing oh, no, 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 with anything no, 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 you said. No, I just thought of that, how that yeah. one time when we were studying, well, the threshing floor and 
or I don't know what it was, but oh, yeah. no, no, no. <laughs> there wasn't I, a ceremony, I guess, oh, no, no, in no, weddings. You, no, you, you have this. No, I don't, think, I don't think marriage requires a ceremony, right. biblically. I don't think marriage necessitates the state. Because um, you have examples of like Isaac and uh, Rebecca, where she comes in. It's the first mention of a cigarette in the Bible. Uh, she lit off her camel. <laughs> and she said, who's that? And he just took her into his parents' tent, and she became his wife. Right, right. That's, David, yeah. the same thing with, with um, Abigail, Nabal's widow. Um, Abigail, he just takes her in his tent and makes her his wife. And so I think, rightly understood, you, you do need a covenant, whether it's explicitly stated or implicitly stated, uh. of of lifelong faithfulness. So right. there could be a sense in which when David says to, um, I mean, we just get the shorthand in Samuel, but when David says to Abigail, I'm going to go in my tent, she understood that as a proposal. And when she said, yes. sure, yes. he understood that as an acceptance. So I'm not saying there has to be a ceremony. There has to be that. I got a, a friend of mine who he's like uber libertarian and he doesn't want the state involved. And, and I said, that's cool, dude. Is that your wife, though? Tell me that's your wife. Tell me you guys have made a lifelong commitment of fidelity. And I'm cool. That's fine. You don't want to involve Caesar in your whatever. But tell me that's your wife. Do you refer to her as your wife? Because we're not getting married. I'm not asking about that. I'm asking about a covenant commitment of lifelong fidelity and faithfulness and service. Where you're going to serve her like Christ serves the church. Is, is that the case? Right? Um, now, certainly, in John 2, Jesus goes to the wedding at Cana, and traditionally, where, where you get marriage ceremonies from is this covenant is going to be witnessed by people, public, right? And so it certainly seems fitting and appropriate that where it is possible to involve the public and the community. And government, at its most basic level, is the community, right? Town governments, right? Um, so I think that's the basis of it. The other, the other major reason the government wants to get involved in marriage is because um, the, the state has a vested interest in the children because we recognize when marriage is dissolved, you really can't trust either or both parent to have the best interest of the child in, in, in view. And so the state gets involved in marriage to regulate marriage, also to be potential advocate loco parenti for the kids. But ba the basis of why we involve the government is you're involving the community. You want to go on record. That's why in you know, the 1800s, if someone's going to get married, first they'd send out a notice in all the public newspapers. So if anyone else could say, no, that's my husband, or that's my wife, they could show up. No, because is there a community somewhere that can tell us this shouldn't happen? And there'd be a chance for that. Um, and because people would get, you know, they'd, they'd just leave town and start a new family somewhere else. Well, if that was the case, you need to give a number of days for, for people to say, hold on now. So that, that's the basis of the community being involved. But, you know, David's a man on the run, a fugitive. He's not going to have a big public wedding. So you don't need those things. But at its basis, there is a covenantal commitment to fidelity, faithfulness. And if that's in place and that's been made, then fine, you're married. Oh, no, sorry. No, no, no problem. No problem. Okay. Okay. Any other questions? Man, I've got 10 minutes left. Care. Yes. The other Mrs. Moore. The original. The, as my mother says, the original is it Mrs. King. Is it on? The original oh, yeah. Mrs. Moore. The original. Um, can I make a statement, or do I have to have a question? You just asked a question about making a statement. Okay. okay. I appreciate your point, Jeremy, about that this is a battle that begins in your mind. Yeah. 
because that really is where it starts. And in this day and age when people are so prone to think, I mean to feel, and that is key to everything, it's not surprising that there, one, might not be a battle because it's all about how I feel, and there's no commitment because, well, if I don't like it after a while, then I'll just depart from that. Um, Anyway, I guess I'm saying, is it any surprise that this is happening? Oh, no, because you got secular humanism saying we're just animals. And let's face it, animals don't treat this type of activity as anything particularly sacred, right? It's, It's just seems like animals don't treat it as any particularly prioritized mm-hmm. thing. Um, we also see from animals the power of the reproductive urge. And so we also tell ourselves, well, of course, you can't deny this. You got the, I mean, what's the something imperative? I'm forgetting the word. Biological imperative. My body is hardwired to reproduce. Can't help it. Um, and then you get uh, the, the culture saying, you got to follow your heart and there's got to be who you are and you know, the same arguments made for, um, for homosexuality, other things, could also be given to uh, bigamy and, uh, and immorality. You know, just sleeping with many women comes very naturally to me. It's just it's who I am. And you know, I want to be me. And I was born that way. No, my heart was born not wanting monogamy. Yeah, we were born that way. Absolutely we were. And so we got to sort of gently see through those things, and all sorts of sinful behavior come very naturally to me. My, my twins already know how to express their will, and if they're not happy about something, if they want you. Um, and it's cute for a little while, uh, because they're small. But, yeah. And so you, you, all this stuff teams up, and we're, oh, it's, it's ridiculous now, because we're, we've, we've our culture has deified sexual experience and sexual identity. That's who you, who you want to sleep with is who you are. That's your identity. That's the real you. That's the core you. Yeah, our, our culture is set up to, to enslave people to this stuff. Absolutely it is. Um, and it's, it's no, no surprise at all. So when you team up the physical power of this thing, right, um, just, just viscerally your body, genes, hormones, and stuff, with your heart... Then you throw in either pride or self, whatever. You got, you got something that can really take people captive. You, you absolutely do. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's why we're to flee and not stand and fight. If you can run, run it, with this type of struggle and this type of sin. Um, time for one more question. We've got five. Oh, Don in the back. Thank you. Uh, this probably might be a little off topic, but when you talk about David with taking Abigail as a wife, uh, I just got thinking, what what about David's wives and concubines? Where does that all kind of fit in? (sighs) Okay, five And I'm sorry, it's right at the end of the discussion. No, 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 because let me me lay the groundwork. Basically, one of the tough questions you got to ask is, does the bio, is, put it this way, is bigamy real? Not is it okay. Is, is it real? Is having multiple spouses something that can be? Because there are some people who would say, um, no, David only ever had one wife. Was his first wife McCall? Yeah. yeah. David only ever has one wife. And everyone else is just people David calls his wife that aren't really his wife. 
The reason this matters also is in tribal missions. What do you do when you come into a tribe or a culture where the leading man is four wives and he comes to faith in Christ? Now what does he do, right? Um, and so the first question you're going to ask is, is polygamy, um, is it real? Not, is it okay? Is it, and I think, this is just, I have not done a detailed study. It sure looks like the narrator of the text speaks about David's wives. Like David had multiple wives, he shouldn't have, I would say, but he did, in fact. I think polygamy is real. Now, some people would disagree on that. I'm not going to fight over that. So that's your first question. The second question is, where does the Bible forbid um, polygamy? And it's not 1 Timothy 3. At best, if 1 Timothy 3, a one-woman man, means not a polygamist, which I don't think it means. I think it means a faithful husband. All that's doing is giving her prohibition for would-be elders. What, what stops the guy from saying, I, I don't want to be an elder, so that doesn't apply to me? Where, no, seriously, where in the Bible do you find the prohibition against polygamy? Genesis 2 or nowhere. Genesis 2 or nowhere. And it's really interesting to me that Jesus, when he's asked about divorce, keeps going back to Genesis 2. He does not object to divorce on the grounds of covenant breaking. I think he would. I'm only aware of one passage that, have, I mean, think, think about this. Like, what bad things could you say about divorce? Why divorce is bad? We would normally say, break your covenants. Malachi comes at it that way. So Malachi does, it's the only passage I know of, that, that rebukes divorce on the basis of covenant breaking, covenant unfaithfulness. That is a valid complaint against divorce. You're breaking your covenant. What is Jesus' complaint? God did a union. How dare you undo that? But God has joined together. Let no man separate. The presumption and arrogance at undoing the union that God made. That's Jesus. And it's Genesis 2. And so at the end of Genesis 2, we get this um, description. I think it's Moses. I don't think it's Adam talking at that point. The last verse or two of Genesis 2. If it's Adam, he's talking prophetically. And he says, um, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. The reason I say that is Adam and Eve didn't have a human father and mother. So either Adam's speaking prophetically, knowing better than he knows how, or I think more likely Moses is summing up, Hey, Israelites, this is why we get married. <laughs> Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. How do you do that with another person? The two, be, the three become two and a half. The five become three. I mean, if this is the prescription of marriage, a leave, a cleave, and a weave, for lack of a better term, how, how does that work with the third person thrown into it? Weave, the gluing together, the weaving together, gluing together. Leave, cleave, weave. If that's the definition of marriage then how do you fit a third person in? How do you fit a fourth person in? I don't think you can. I would argue if you don't see a prohibition of polygamy here, you're not going to find it anywhere else. Certainly God tells Israel's kings not to multiply wives. Um, but again, yeah. But it, it, and this is the other thing I'd mark is this. I, I'd like to, I'd love to... Um, well, no, I, yeah, I think that it's, it's not for nothing that Moses, in I think every instance, I'd love to do a study sometime. If I ever take get a sabbatical, Greg, I'll be doing the study on this. Um, hint, hint, no, just kidding. Um, 
I think every time in the scripture, and at least in the Pentateuch, um, or the early books of the Bible, that you've got polygamy, the narrator puts the spotlight on the ugliness and the brokenness it yields. I mean, if you've read through Genesis, right, you've got this account of Rachel and Leah bartering mandrakes for who gets to spend the night with Jacob. I mean, why is that? In, I mean, if you ask yourself, like, why do I need to know that? Why is that in Scripture? I don't know what Abraham looked like. I don't know if he was tall, if he was short. I don't know what his favorite food was. But I know about this mandrake thing. Why? I think part of the answer has to be, that is messed up. When two sisters are bartering and negotiating over who gets to sleep in the, in the husband's bed. And we are seeing the ugly fruit. Or you go to, to Jacob and, and his children. When your kids are selling each other into slavery, something's broken. Fair enough? Why? Because of all of this conflict of who he prefers and who he loves with his two sisters. By the way, that, that reinterprets, I think, the story of uh, Jacob and Leah and, and uh, Rachel. Everyone thinks of it as the love story of Jacob. But if I'm right, if Genesis 2 right out of the gate says you shouldn't do that, what should Jacob have done after he got Leah? I was deceived, but this is my wife, and I'm trusting that the Lord's going to be good. And as much as my heart wants Rachel, it's a different way of reading that story rather than that's so romantic as he took his second wife. Um, no, but, I, but I've read stories about you are a man who loves you like Jacob loved Rachel. Nope. No, you don't. And then, because after Rachel, as, as much as he loved Rachel, he got with their, with their handmaidens. I mean, it, no, you don't. You don't want that. Um, but, and then you think of David, right? And so David multiplies this wife. And one of his kids rapes the other, rapes Tamar, and then Absalom avenges his sister by, by murdering Amnon, who raped Tamar. You getting the point of the bad fruit this bears yet? And so time and time again, if you're wondering why are these really messed up, ugly scenarios in there, I think part of it is because Moses wants to make it really clear, this does not yield good fruit. But I, I would argue, and we'll end on this, if you don't see a prohibition against polygamy in Genesis 2, I don't think you're going to find it anywhere in the Bible. Um, you could say, well, you can't be a king of Israel and you can't be an elder, perhaps, but what do you say to the person who says, yeah, I don't want to be either, so. Anyway, thank you much. Oh, Jim, Jim, bring us home, man. Drink from your own cistern. Amen. Godspeed. God bless. Thank you.